Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories. Well, the lead story, once again, concerns the tragedy unfolding in the Ukraine. We have now ended phase one of that war, and now we're going into phase two of that war, which is going to be even bloodier than we previously thought. A new tragedy for the people of Ukraine. So we'll summarize the pros and cons of what's happening, the ups and downs of this horrible conflict, as we talk about the science of warfare on exploration. And then we'll say a few things about Hollywood. You know, it used to be that for the last 50 years, Hollywood was mesmerized by outer space. But eventually the public began to say, well, we've been there, we've done it, we've been to the moon, we're going to go to Mars, what else is new? So Hollywood has now discovered the multiverse. All the big blockbusters take place in the multiverse. Parallel universes, left and right. If Spider-Man cannot defeat the enemy, what does he do? He recruits help from other Spider-Men in different universes. And where does the multiverse idea come from? It comes from theoretical physics. So I'll say a few things about parallel universes on exploration. And then I'll try to answer the question that all of you want to know. And that is, is Elvis Presley still alive in a parallel universe? And then we'll say a few things about the space program. Yes, once again, the Artemis space uh, rocket has been delayed. The Artemis rocket, with an SLS booster rocket, is designed to be tested for a moon mission. Yes, we're going back to the moon in 2024. Around that time, a rocket carrying a woman and at least one person of color will go around the moon, perhaps in a figure eight configuration. And after that, after orbiting the moon, they will land on the moon. So after an absence of about 50 years, yes, we're going back to the moon. And what do we do when we're on the moon? We're going to build a space station, a space station called the Gateway, which is going to then create a rocket, which will take us to Mars. And speaking about Mars, we'll talk about a comet, a comet that is blazing in outer space, visible by telescopes, not by the naked eye. It is the biggest comet ever recorded in history. Think of it, a comet twice the size of Rhode Island. We've never seen a comet this big. It'll whiz around Neptune and then Saturn and then go blasting off into outer space. So probably you won't have a chance to see it with binoculars. However, it's something to realize that in this universe, there are gigantic things that we've never seen before. And that is a comet twice the size of Royal Item that is whizzing through our solar system. And then we'll say a few things about cancer. There's a new kind of therapy that's quite experimental, but has a lot of promise. Instead of using radiation, which in itself can cause cancer, it uses sound waves, sonar, ultrasound. So this is a new therapy that's being tested so far, at least in animal studies, it seems to work. And of course, it doesn't have the side effects of ionizing radiation.
Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. The lead story today is the fact that we're leaving phase one of the Ukrainian war, now entering phase two, which could be bloodier than previously projected. First of all, in phase one, the Russian military made the biggest mistake that any military can make. The biggest mistake that any military can make is a mistake of overconfidence. The Russian army was able to roll over Syria, Georgia, Chechnya, Crimea. It was batting a thousand. It was up against adversaries that couldn't stand up to the might of the Russian army, and the Russians just came in and bulldozed those countries down. Well, now they made the mistake of overconfidence. The Russians apparently thought that the war would last maybe three days. They would go in and the, the Ukrainian people would throw flowers at them, welcoming them as liberators, and the Russian army would be hailed as being victorious once again. Nope, didn't work that way. Because the Ukrainian people wanted to fight for their homeland. And also, the military made several huge mistakes. Because they thought the war would only last three days, they prepared for a three-day war. They weren't expecting to see such resistance against their tanks. Now, when you think of a tank, you think of something that's invulnerable. A tank, this gigantic juggernaut coming at you. But you see, when I was in the military, I actually fired anti-tank weapons. An anti-tank weapon is a tube. It's about, oh, four feet long. You put it on your right shoulder. You put your eyepiece next to the tube, and you fire a missile. And there are basically three points where you fire the missile. One is the treads. The treads of a tank are highly vulnerable. You can blow the treads right off a tank. Second, the turret. Right underneath the turret is the neck, the neck of the tank, where you can literally blow the turret right off, killing everyone inside the tank. And third, if the tank were to go up and down a hill, as it goes up a hill, it exposes its underside which is not guarded at all, not reinforced at all. And that's the third place where you can knock out a tank. Plus the fact that during the invasion of Ukraine, the weather was not in the favor of the Russians. The weather was quite muddy and it's heavily forested. As a consequence, they were forced to go on the highways where they were sitting ducks to guerrilla warfare tactics, sitting ducks to anti-tank weapons. So phase one was a disaster for the Russian military. And the new recruits, they thought that this was a training exercise. They weren't told that this is a real shooting war and those people are going to fire back at you. A lot of the recruits, green recruits, thought that this was basically a training exercise. However, now we're entering phase two where the advantage begins to shift in the other direction in favor of the Russians. First of all, we don't have heavily forested areas in eastern Ukraine. It's mainly open plains. So it's like a conventional war, not between tanks, but between heavy artillery. At that point, the Russians have an advantage because they've already been able to flatten many of the cities of the Ukraine using long-range artillery. And the Ukrainians just now, just this week, are beginning to get access to long-distance heavy artillery. So in other words, it's going to be more like 
World War II and less like the Vietnam War as we enter phase two of this, of this disaster. And so how is it going to turn out? I don't know. But it turns out that the advantage that the Ukrainians had initially are wearing thin. And we'll have to wait and see whether or not the Ukrainian military can get reinforcements and heavy artillery in time. And then the last question is, what about the long term? Is it possible that there could be a peace treaty, a ceasefire, and then a pledge never to fight again on this terrain? Is it possible to have a peaceful resolution of this crisis between the West and Vladimir Putin? Well, some people have pointed out that Putin is a student of Russian history, and he knows what happens to dictators when they don't fulfill their end of the bargain. There's no pension plan for dictators in Russia. For example, take a look at what happened to Khrushchev. After the humiliation of the Cuban Missile Crisis, he was kicked out. And look what happened to Gorbachev with the collapse of the Soviet Union and with the stalemate and the defeat in Afghanistan. What happened to Gorbachev? He was kicked out. And so I think Putin realizes that there's no long-term pension plan for ex-dictators in Russia. So he will probably fight to the bitter end. And now changing the subject, let's say a few things about Hollywood. Hollywood movies, well, those big blockbusters used to talk about outer space. But you know, we've been there. We've been to the moon. We have probes that went to Mars and the solar system. Ho-hum. Now Hollywood needs a new gimmick to keep those ticket buyers coming. And that new gimmick is the multiverse. All of a sudden, Spider-Man needs reinforcements. And where does he get reinforcements? From parallel universes. And where do the enemies come from? They also come from parallel universes. And so we have a battle between good and bad, not in one universe, but across the multiverse. And, of course, science fiction has supplied Hollywood with these themes. Look at the TV series, Man in a High Castle. That was written by Philip K. Dick. And that novel is based on one incident that takes place before World War II. An assassin tries to assassinate FDR. In one universe, the assassin's bullet jams. FDR survives the assassination attempt and leads the Allies to victory in World War II. But in another parallel universe, that gun does not jam. FDR is assassinated, and the vice president who comes in is very weak, and as a consequence, the Germans win World War II. They take the east coast of the United States, and the Japanese Imperial Army takes the west coast. And so Hollywood has already discovered parallel universes, not just as superheroes, but even stories about daily life are now beginning to be told from the point of view of the multiverse. Well, where does the multiverse come from? It comes from my field, theoretical physics. And how do we physicists resolve the question of the parallel universes? First of all, it goes back to the quantum theory. Now, common sense tells you that objects exist in one state only, 
You cannot exist in two or three states simultaneously. That's ridiculous. However, that's exactly what happens in the subatomic quantum realm. Electrons can be more places at the same time, which is impossible in our universe, but it happens inside a transistor. It happens inside a laser beam. Why is it that all the marvels in your living room, that is the internet, lasers, telecommunications, GPS, all of that, why is it that they can perform their magic? Common sense tells you that they should be impossible. But you see, at the subatomic realm, that's exactly what electrons do. They can be in multiple states at the same time. And as a consequence, that's why we have transistors. That's why we have lasers. That's why we have GPS. That is why you are listening to my voice right now. Compliments of the quantum theory. So the quantum theory says that electrons can be in two places at the same time. But we are made out of electrons. Therefore, why can't we also be in multiple states at the same time? If electrons can do it, then why not us? And we begin to realize that there's a finite but small probability that we too can make these fantastic quantum jumps because we too are made out of electrons. Now to explain this, I once interviewed Nobel Prize winner Steven Weinberg. I had him on this radio show, in fact. And I asked the Nobel Prize winner, how do you resolve the fact that in theoretical physics, we dabble with the multiverse, that is parallel universes, but we don't see them in real life. In real life, we cannot zap between universes. In our universe, Elvis Presley died. In these other parallel universes someplace, Elvis Presley is still alive, belting out these hits. How do you resolve that with common sense? And he had said something which is very profound. He said, think of you in your living room listening to the radio. Everybody does that once in a while. Listen to TV, listen to radio. Your radio is tuned to one frequency. But in your living room, you have the waves of all sorts of radio stations, radio stations from Russia, Cuba, Canada, all over the United States, all sorts of radio stations buzzing by in your living room. But why can't you hear them? You can't hear them because your radio does not vibrate in synchronization with these other frequencies. These other frequencies are there. They're definitely there, but you can't pick them up. You can only tune into one frequency at a time. Now, we physicists call this coherence. When two things vibrate in unison, they are coherent, and you can listen in on that frequency. But for the most part, most frequencies are incoherent with you. Therefore, you cannot hear them because your radio is not tuned into them. Okay, you got that? Now, let's go to the quantum level. The electron is a wave, has wave-like properties, and so in some sense, your living room is full of the vibrations of electrons in different states. For example, pirates, dinosaurs, gun battles, all sorts of things happening in your living room with electrons vibrating in those universes. But your, your radio, that is you, your eyesight, your senses, you are not tuned into those frequencies. So in other words, you have decohered. 
You have decohered from the dinosaurs. You have decohered from pirates. You have decohered from all these other parallel universes. Now, they are there in your living room. You have the vibrations of electrons executing all sorts of crazy things, but you have decohered from them. And therefore, for the most part, you are in your living room all by yourself. Now, here's a problem that we give our PhD students. For our PhD students in physics, we say, here's a problem. Calculate the probability that you'll wake up on Mars tomorrow. Now, people would say, that's a stupid question. You're not going to wind up on Mars tomorrow. You're going to wind up in your bed tomorrow. But that's not the problem. The problem is calculate the quantum probability that you will tunnel, as we say, tunnel across the gravitational barrier and wind up on Mars tomorrow. Well, these students take out a sheet of paper and they do the calculation. It comes from quantum mechanics. You have to use the Heisenberg uncertainty principle and you calculate a number. Yes, it is possible that you can quantum mechanically tunnel right through the gravitational barrier and wind up on Mars tomorrow. Now you may say to yourself, tunneling, doesn't tunneling violate common sense? I mean, burrowing right through brick walls and gravitational barriers. Well, think of the nuclear force. Think of radiation. Why do we have radiation? Radiation occurs because the nucleus of the atom, okay, tunneling occurs inside the atom so that particles can escape the nuclear force field. The nuclear force field of the nuclear force keeps these particles inside the atom. That's why atoms, for the most part, do not decay. But there's a probability that they will tunnel, tunnel right through the barrier of the nuclear force and wind up in radiation. And that's why we have radiation. That's why we have uranium. That's why we have thorium and plutonium being radioactive, because they can tunnel. They can penetrate these barriers. And why is that important? Because that's what heats up the center of the Earth. The center of the Earth, by all rights, should be frozen solid now. The Earth is about 4.6 billion years old. Plenty of time for the Earth to have sealed off and been frozen solid. But the Earth has volcanoes. It has continental drift. We have tsunamis. Where does the energy, where does the energy of earthquakes, the energy of volcanoes, the energy of tsunamis come from? It comes from tunneling. Because the center of the Earth is radioactive. That's why the Earth still has, has tremendous churning of the core of the Earth. That's why we still have continental drift. That's why we still have volcanoes and tsunamis. Because of the fact that the center of the Earth is radioactive. And tunneling exists there. Well, anyway, let's go back to my poor PhD students. When they take the exam... They have to calculate the probability that they'll wind up on Mars tomorrow. They calculate the probability that they'll tunnel, tunnel right through the gravitational barrier and get a number. Well, the number is, you would have to wait longer than the lifetime of the universe for that to happen. A calculable number. So in other words, chances are, you're going to wind up in your bed tomorrow. You're not going to wind up on Mars. But there is a probability you can calculate on a PhD exam that you will wind up on Mars tomorrow. And the same thing with Elvis Presley. People ask the question, is Elvis Presley still alive in a parallel universe? And if this theory is correct, then the answer is yes. He is still alive. People that have died in one universe could still be alive 
in a parallel universe, but you can't visit these parallel universes. In other words, the probability that you will wind up in another parallel universe is so small, you would probably have to wait longer than the lifetime of the universe for that to happen. But for electrons, yes, it does happen for electrons. And what is it called? It's called a laser. It's called a transistor. It's called the internet. All that possible precisely because there's a finite probability that you can tunnel right through barriers. Well, moving on, let's say a few things about the space program. We have the Artemis rocket, which is going to be tested to send astronauts to the moon. That's right. After an absence of about 50 years, we're going back to the moon. But there have been delays, a whole series of delays with the Artemis rocket. The Artemis rocket is designed to take the SLS booster along with the Orion space capsule onto the moon with a planned mission around 2024 to put people, that is a woman and at least one person of color, orbiting around the moon. They're not going to land on the moon. They'll simply orbit around the moon around 2024. Then around 2026 or so, humans will land on the moon. After this tremendous gap, well, we are going back to the moon. Now, what are we going to do there once we get to the moon? Well, we're going to build a space station to create a permanent presence of human activity on the moon. We're just not going to go there, score a touchdown, come home, throw away the football. No, we're going there to stay. At least that's the plan. And then while we're there, we're going to build a space station around the moon called the Gateway. And the Gateway, in turn, is going to be a preliminary mission to go on to Mars. So yes, there is a game plan there. We'll have to wait and see how this game plan measures up against budget cuts and delays. But the plan is, first, test the Artemis rocket, which we're doing this year. Second, have a manned mission to go around the moon, but not land, around 2024. And then soon after that, finally to land on the moon, and then build an orbiter to go around the moon. And then lastly, use that orbiter to build a rocket, which will take us to Mars. Well, that's the game plan anyway, and we'll see how that plays out. But at least on paper, everything seems to be in place. And Speaking about outer space, there's something that we've seen in outer space that we didn't expect, and that is the biggest comet, the biggest comet in history. The biggest comet in recorded history has just been sighted past the orbit of Neptune. It is traveling at 22,000 miles per hour, and it weighs. It weighs an astonishing 500 trillion tons. It is a huge piece of rock and ice. It's bigger than Mount Everest. In fact, it weighs 2,800 times more than Mount Everest. And how big is it? Twice the size of Rhode Island. That's how big it is. Now, are we going to be able to see it? Well, not really. First of all, it's way out there near the orbit of Neptune right now. And in 2031, it'll make its closest approach, and it'll go by Saturn. So, sorry about that. It's not going to light, sky, light the night sky up like a blazing light show, but it just goes to show you that the universe is a lot stranger than we previously thought. This object is huge. Look at Halley's Comet. 
Haley's Comet is perhaps 10 to 20 miles across, about the size of Manhattan. That's the size of Haley's Comet. But this comet, weighing in at 500 trillion tons, is twice the size of Royal Island. Now, of course, it's going to miss the Earth. We track that thing. But imagine for the moment what could happen if something like that were to actually hit the Earth. It would be bigger, much bigger, than the asteroid which plowed into the Yucatan of Mexico 66 million years ago, wiping out the dinosaurs. About 75% of all life forms perished when that object hit Mexico. However, this thing is way bigger than the object which wiped out the dinosaurs. This object is a planet killer. If it were to hit the Earth, it would wipe out not just certain life forms, it would probably wipe out all life on the planet Earth. That's how big some of these objects are in the universe. And that's why we have to track them. That's why we have to track them and build rockets that can one day perhaps intercept some of these objects. Now, let's be fair. An object that's twice the size of Rhode Island, the probability that one of our rockets can push that out of the way is very small. But it does mean that we have to be on the lookout, on the lookout for objects that big. Also, let me say something about cancer. On exploration, we've talked about several new therapies that are just coming online. Therapies that can take someone with incurable forms of cancer, cancer that's already spread, and cure them. Not always, but it turns out the very fact that we can talk about these successes is amazing. Well, here's yet another therapy that's coming out. First of all, we know that radiation can kill cancers, but radiation itself can cause mutations. So we have to be very careful how radiation is used. Now here we're, not, we're talking about sound. That's right, there's a new therapy coming out that's been tested on animals, and that is using ultrasound. Ultrasound to knock out tumors. These are high-frequency pulses, so they're not dangerous, and it's sound waves, not ionizing radiation. And what it does is it creates microscopic air bubbles, microscopic air bubbles inside the tumor, which then eventually expand and destroy the tumor. So far, it works. At least it's worked on animals. Now, of course, we have to make the big transition to testing it on humans, but it just goes to show that whole new avenues are opening up, high-tech devices that may one day help to rein in cancer. On exploration, we've talked about several of these new therapies. We talked about liquid biopsies, a simple blood test which can detect 50, get this, 50 different types of cancers that's now been authorized by the FDA for use on patients. And immunotherapy, boosting the immune system of the human body. That has tremendous pro pro promise. It's already been used in cases where people have basically uh, a fatal form of cancer that's already spread, and immunotherapy can begin to rein in some of these tumors and cancers. Now, unfortunately, we still have no foolproof cure for cancer, but we have new avenues new avenues by which we can attack cancer at the atomic, molecular, and genetic level. We're entering a new era in cancer research.
Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of Exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku. If you want to find out more about Exploration, go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org, or go to Facebook. I have 5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. The latest one is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. So stay tuned now for the second half of Exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City University of New York, and this is the second half of Exploration. In this section, we're going to talk about the origin of the universe. How do we know that the universe was started with this gigantic Big Bang? Well, with us today is Michael Lemonick. He's a science writer with Time Magazine, author of a number of great books. And so we're going to talk about what we know about the origin of the universe. You know, when you go outside and look at all the stars, you see thousands upon thousands of stars twinkling at you in the dead of night, and you can't help but wonder, where did it all come from? What does it all mean? Well, there was one astronomer who said there's a paradox with regards to the night sky. Let's assume for the moment that there's an infinite number of stars in the heavens. That's a reasonable assumption. It seemed as if the universe just goes on forever. But you see, if you have an infinite number of stars, that means there's an infinite amount of light coming at you from all directions. In which case, the night sky should be white rather than black. And in fact, your eyeballs should melt because there's an infinite number of stars that are beaming their energy down to you. This is called Ober's Paradox, and it's a paradox that's centuries old, and people used to wonder, if the universe is infinite, which is reasonable, it's been around for an infinite amount of time, everywhere you look, you see a star, that means there's an infinite amount of starlight no matter where you look. Anywhere you look, there's an infinite number of stars in that very same quadrant that you're looking at, meaning that it should be white. So this is Olber's paradox. The question is, why is the night sky black, not white? Well, believe it or not, the person who finally figured it out was Edgar Allan Poe, the mystery writer. Believe it or not, he was an amateur astronomer, and he actually wrote down the solution to this puzzle. But with us today to talk about this and other puzzles is Michael Lemonick, a science writer at Time Magazine, and so we're going to ask him about the Big Bang and how do we resolve Ober's paradox, the fact that the nice guy should be white rather than black. 
Yes, I, I think it, it was a real problem. Uh, as you say, it's, it's, a, it's a nice piece of mathematics. You can sort of just look at shells of the universe, and every shell contains a finite number of stars, and if you build up the shells, it turns out that wherever you look, you should see a star. And therefore, the night sky, as you say, instead of being pretty much black, would be pretty much brilliant white, infinitely bright. Uh, and, and, and I think astronomers were, were fundamentally stumped by this. I think you can come up with all sorts of ad hoc excuses. You know, maybe there's dust in the universe that absorbs the light. Well, then the dust should re-emit the light. Um, can't get rid of it. Um, you know, pe people tried to come up with all sorts of excuses, but none of them were really very satisfactory. If the universe is eternal and pretty much unchanging, there's no real way out of, out of Olber's paradox, I think. So it was Edgar Allan Poe, according to historians who've gone through the record, it was Edgar Allan Poe, the famous American mystery writer, who practically on his deathbed uh, wrote the solution to Olber's paradox. So maybe the universe had a beginning. Maybe there's a cutoff with regards to the amount of light that hits your eyeball when you look in outer space. Well, that's, uh, that's, could that's, you elaborate? That's, that's, yeah, I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I didn't realize that uh, Edgar Allan Poe had, had sort of come up with this first. But, but as you say, the, the, the way we now get out of Olber's paradox is with the Big Bang Theory. The Big Bang Theory says the universe hasn't been here forever. It's only been here for a finite time. We now know that's roughly 14 billion years. Um, the best guess we have is 13.7 billion years. Um, if the universe has only been here for a finite amount of time, then light can have reached us only from a finite volume of the universe. So out there, way, way, way beyond this kind of uh, horizon, there may be tons and tons of light, but none of it's reached us yet because it's too far away. So we effectively live in a sort of a finite volume of, of, of observation, and therefore, therefore we only see a finite amount of light uh, and, and I think that's how we get out of, out of, out of Olber's paradox today. In other words, you have to abandon that, the idea of an eternal, infinite universe and embrace the idea of a, 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 a universe with a finite age. It was actually created a finite time ago. So it's rather amazing that the reason why the night sky is black is because there is a cutoff, as, as Edgar Allan Poe uh, mentioned in his book, uh, there's a cutoff. Light hasn't had time to reach us because there was a, a beginning. Now, the Hubble Space Telescope has actually given us photographs of the most distant stars in the universe. And sure enough, um, when you go past the most distant stars, there is blackness. There is essentially the Big Bang. The Big Bang is essentially staring at you in the face. And, of course, the Big Bang you cannot see because it's in the microwave region. But that's the reason why the night sky is black, because you're literally staring at the Big Bang. Yeah, it's very interesting that if, if we go back 100 years, uh, you know, Einstein was sort of uh, his 100th anniversary of his Annus Mirabilis. If we go back to 1905, pretty much the whole scientific establishment thinks that the universe has been here forever. They don't believe in the Big Bang. And yet, in a way, the clue was there. Olber's paradox is what should have been telling them that they have to really move towards a Big Bang model. And uh, Edgar Allan Poe, that, that's interesting to know that he sort of first posited this. Um, one of the first people to sort of posit it in, in a more mathematical framework was the Belgian cosmologist Georges Lemaitre in around 1927. And he sat down and wrote down the equations and said, look, logically, it is possible 
uh, if, we, if we look at Einstein's theory of gravitation, everything is consistent with the idea of a, of a Big Bang universe. He didn't talk about a Big Bang. He used phrases like a day without a yesterday. But essentially, you know, he, was, he was solving Olber's paradox by saying uh, the universe started with a Big Bang. Still nobody believed him, though. Still the scientific establishment wanted to hold on to its notion of an eternal universe. Like every establishment, uh, people are sort of comfortable with what they know, and they're reluctant to embrace new ideas, especially as there wasn't really much observational evidence to back up Lemaitre's idea. So the Big Bang in the mid-1920s was very much a, 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 a hypothesis. Okay, now let's go to the late 1920s, where we have Edwin Hubble, who is perhaps the greatest astronomer of the last century, where we have the discovery of the expanding universe from Mount Wilson Observatory in California. So could you elaborate now, what did Edwin Hubble find? Well, Hubble um, looked up into the, into the night sky and studied galaxies and, and was measuring what we call redshift. Um, uh, if, you, uh, if you listen to a car go by at high speed, it makes that classic noise, uh, it goes from a high pitch to a low pitch. As it approaches, the, the sound waves are sort of compressed. As it leaves, the sound waves are drawn apart. Now, if a galaxy is approaching, it doesn't make a sound, but the light waves are sort of compressed. Uh, it, the physics is a bit more complicated than this, but, but essentially, if a galaxy is coming towards you, it should look a little bit blue. If it's moving away from you, it should look a little bit red. Now, whenever Hubble looked at a distant galaxy, it was always red. It was always red-shifted, always redder than it should have been. So if all the galaxies in the universe, all the distant galaxies, if they're all red-shifted, they're all moving away. If they're all moving away, well, that's exactly what you would expect if the universe started with a Big Bang. Hot, dense, compact object explodes outwards. The debris forms galaxies. The galaxies should still be flying apart. And that's exactly what Hubble was seeing. So this is sort of 1929 to 1931 when this data sort of started rolling in. It was the first real evidence to, to, to sort of indicate that maybe Lemaitre was right. Still, the scientific establishment didn't embrace the Big Bang theory. Um, it's like building a case in a court of law. Um, you don't convict somebody on maybe just one piece of evidence. If the Big Bang is guilty of creating the universe, we want more than just one piece of evidence. So Lemaitre and the other supporters of the Big Bang theory had to continue uh, their battle to, to find proof of the Big Bang. But Hubble's data, you're absolutely right, was, was pivotal in, in beginning to swing the debate in their favor. Okay, now let's go to the 1950s uh, when a British astronomer and his colleagues, uh, led by Fred Hoyle, begin to challenge the Big Bang Theory. And apparently, in a BBC uh, debate with George Gamow, uh, Fred Hoyle coins the word uh, Big Bang as a, as a rather derisive comment. Uh, after all, it wasn't very big, and there was no bang. <laughs> But tell us a little bit about the debate between Fred Hoyle and George Gamow. Well, yeah, I think Gamow was, was a proponent of the Big Bang Theory, uh, whereas Hoyle was very skeptical. And I've, I've heard this BBC radio piece of archive, and it, it, it's lovely to hear Fred Hoyle in his very kind of Yorkshire, abrupt, down-to-earth voice saying, you know, he says, uh, you know, this Big Bang Theory to me seems unreasonable. Uh, and he, he used the phrase as an insult. Big Bang, just kind of a throwaway comment. 
but the name stuck. And um, critics liked it, the fans liked it, and we've, we've sort of used it ever since. But the reason that, that, that Hoyle found Big Bang to be unreasonable was he just found it, I think, philosophically unpalatable to have eternity, uh, to, to have a creation. Um, he didn't like the idea of, 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 of a moment of creation. To me, it sort of smacked, to him, it sort of smacked of a god. Um, but at the, on the other hand, he had to accept that the universe was expanding. The universe was getting bigger. So how do you marry those two things? A universe that is changing, but on the other hand, Hoyle wanted it to last forever and to have been here forever. And his way to sort of marry those two ideas was to say, okay, the galaxies move apart because the universe is expanding. But then new matter is created in the gaps. And those new, that new matter evolves into galaxies. And then that galaxy moves away, and then a new galaxy is born. And so that way, the overall density of galaxies in the universe remains the same. If you look way into the future, the overall galaxies remain equally dense. If you look way into the past, the number of galaxies per certain volume remains the same. And this was called the steady state theory of the universe. Um, my understanding was that I met Thomas Gold, who, who worked with Fred Hoyle on this, and uh, they, he told me a story that they went to see a film in uh, 1945. And the film is about a young man who wakes up one morning. He's, he's had been having a huge dream, a very vivid dream. In the middle of the dream, he suddenly wakes up. He gets washed. He gets dressed. He jumps into his car. He drives into the countryside. His car breaks down. He goes into a house um, looking for help. Um, things go horribly wrong. It's a, it's a sort of slightly drawn-out story, but things go horribly wrong. And eventually, the people in the house grab the young man and strangle him. They, they throttle him. And just as they're about to strangle him to death, he wakes up. He's been having a dream. He gets washed. He gets dressed. He jumps into his car. He drives into the countryside. His car breaks down. He goes to the house. He looks for help. And so on and so on. So here's a film that has a sort of cyclic or continual um, version. The film could go on forever and ever and ever. It sort of develops, but it sort of stays the same. And it was seeing that film that inspired Fred Hoyle and his colleagues to develop their steady state view of the universe, a universe that clearly changes because it expands, but one that sort of could stay the same. Now, the Big Bang Theory did have a flaw, and even George Gamow admitted this. If the Big Bang was very hot, it was an oven. And if it was an oven, it cooked the higher elements. And so all the elements we see around us, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, should have been cooked in the furnace of the Big Bang. But the data didn't seem to fit. Uh, it seemed to explain the abundance of helium quite nicely, but it didn't explain the abundance of the other elements. So how was this flaw eventually resolved? Yes, it, you know, it's, it's possible to do quite detailed calculations about the early universe. If you go back to a few minutes after the Big Bang, you know the density of particles, you know the temperature of the Big Bang, and you can work out exactly what cooking should have gone on. And what you can't do is cook the heavy elements. Gold, platinum, sodium, they're, they're, they're just too heavy to have been cooked in this short window of what's called nucleosynthesis. And this was an embarrassment for the Big Bang because the Big Bang was supposed to account for everything. Now, ironically, Fred Hoyle, who hated the Big Bang, helped the Big Bang get out of this hole. Um, what Fred Hoyle, working with Willie Fowler and Margaret and Jeffrey Burbage, 
Um, together, they wrote a, an incredible paper um, called B Squared FH, Burbage, Burbage, Fowler, and Hoyle, after the, the names of the authors. Uh, in this paper, they explain that if you have different stars of different masses at different points in their lives, at different generations, when those stars collapse, depending on their, their makeup, they create the heavy elements. And, 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 and depending on, on their background, they de create different elements. And so it's the collapsing, the death of stars, that creates the gold, the platinum, the sodium, and everything else. So the story we have now is the Big Bang creates hydrogen and helium and a few other the very light elements. That goes on to form the stars, and then the stars form the rest of the periodic table. And um, so even though Fred Hoyle was a great critic of the Big Bang, um, one, he named it, as we, as we said earlier, and two, he helped the Big Bang uh, through the, the process of stellar death to create all the elements around it. Now, what finally killed the steady-state theory was the discovery that the afterglow, the shockwave, the echo of the Big Bang is still reverberating throughout the universe, and it could actually be observed experimentally. It was, ex it was predicted by George Gamow in 1948 with his students and then found in the 1960s. So explain to us the cosmic microwave background radiation. Predicted is, is the key thing here. I think uh, 1948, Gamow, uh, Robert Herman, uh, Ralph Alpha sat down and made a make-or-break prediction. They said if there was a Big Bang, and in 1948 not many people believed in the Big Bang, but they said if there was a Big Bang, it should have been followed by a blast of radiation. Um, what they meant was that in the early universe, um, all the, the, the light, the radiation would have been trapped by sort of scattering off all the charged particles. But after about uh, 400,000 years, those charged particles couple up and form atoms. And suddenly this radiation is released, uh, released to, to, to stream throughout the universe. And as the universe is expanding, this radiation would sort of get stretched. And now today we should see that radiation in the form of microwave, the cosmic microwave background radiation, if the Big Bang Theory is true. Look for those microwaves. If you find them, you know the Big Bang Theory is true. If you don't find them, you know the Big Bang Theory is wrong. It's a make-or-break test. They were really putting the, the, the neck of the Big Bang on the line. And um, in 1948, nobody could really test this prediction because people didn't have the technology to pick up such uh, microwaves supposedly coming from outer space. But in 1965, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson, working at Bell Laboratories in New Jersey, had a, a radio telescope. They were radio astronomers. You pointed up at the sky. You you study the radio waves from galaxies, and that way you can work out what's going on inside a galaxy. But even when they didn't point it at a radio galaxy, in fact, when they were trying to calibrate it by pointing it away from a radio galaxy, they still got microwaves. Microwaves are a type of radio wave. Uh, they pointed it in a different direction. They still got microwaves. They waited 24 hours. They still got microwaves. Whatever, wherever, whenever they, you know, they, they pointed their, their telescope, they got microwaves. And uh, to start with, they blamed it on a couple of pigeons that were in the telescope. Uh, but, but nothing to do with the pigeons, nothing to do with anything else. Eventually, they realized the microwaves were real. They were coming from the Big Bang. In fact, the cosmologists had to point it out to them and say, look, what you've discovered 
is the echo from the Big Bang, a kind of luminous echo, an afterglow of creation. The wavelength of these microwaves was exactly what you would expect if it came from the Big Bang. And, and this is 1965, and, and it really was a pivotal moment in the history of the Big Bang, because suddenly a lot of people who'd previously been skeptical changed to the other side. Sir Herman Bondy, who, who recently passed away, had been a huge supporter of Fred Hoyle. But um, he'd always said, look, show me one fossil that the Big Bang happened, and I'll believe you. Well, here was a fossil, fossil radiation left over from the Big Bang. And in fact, if people tune their radios in between stations and they hear that hissing, crackling sound, uh, one or two percent of the energy that their aerial is picking up is this energy from the Big Bang. Now, do you find it rather scandalous that George Gamow and his colleagues never won the Nobel Prize for one of the greatest predictions of the last hundred years, and that Fred Hoyle never won the Nobel Prize for nuclear synthesis, even though his colleagues won the Nobel Prize? Do you find that rather scandalous? Yes, I, I think, I mean, Fred Hoyle's case, I think, is, is particularly sad because, you know, he was wrong about the Big Bang, completely and utterly wrong. But on the other hand, he was incredibly intelligent, a brilliant cosmologist who made great breakthroughs in many areas. And I think he certainly deserved the Nobel Prize for his work with Willie Fowler and the Burbages. Uh, Fowler did get the Nobel Prize. Hoyle didn't. And, and maybe the reason is that Hoyle was very outspoken. Um, you know, he, he, he said it how it was. And this often offended people. So when Jocelyn Bell Burnell was overlooked for a Nobel Prize, he openly criticized the Nobel Committee. Um, later towards the end of his career, he had some rather crazy ideas. Um, in fact, Coyle came up with lots of crazy ideas. Some of them turned out to be true, uh, but a lot of them didn't, and, and, and those that didn't somehow tarnished his reputation. Um, in terms of Gamow, Alpha, and Herman not getting a Nobel Prize, um, I think that's a great shame, too. It's, it's one of those limitations of the, of the Nobel, that is that only three people get the Nobel Prize. So, you know, You've got five people here. You've got Gamow, Herman, Alpha, uh, and then you've got uh, Penzias and Wilson. Who gets it? Who doesn't? Who's on the list? Who's off the list? Um, that's a kind of arbitrary decision. Some people say, you know, uh, Wilson and, and Alpha, uh, Wilson and, and Penzias weren't even looking for the Big Bang. Why should they get the Nobel Prize for making such a lucky discovery? Their discovery was pure serendipity. Um, I mean, I, I think they did deserve credit for their work because many people probably detected that microwave radiation uh, but they ignored it because it's so gentle so so light that you can prove, pretty much do your experiment anyway but 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 Benzias and wilson refused to just ignore it they wanted to get to the bottom of it and so they were really good observational astronomers and just for their tenacity and, and determination and attention to detail uh, as, as well as their luck that um, they deserve the Nobel Prize. Now, earlier we mentioned that Einstein introduced a fudge factor in order to stabilize his universe to account for the Bentley paradox of a collapsing universe if gravity is attractive. But now, perhaps Einstein has the last word, because now the recent data seems to indicate that the universe is expanding out of control and it will eventually die in a big freeze, all because of this cosmological constant, which we now think dominates the entire matter-energy content of the universe, making up 73% of the matter-energy content of the universe. Uh, could you elaborate? 
Yes, I, I think, so, so Einstein, first of all, didn't have a cosmological constant um, because his equation was beautiful without it. Then he added it in to stop the universe from collapsing. Then when the Big Bang theory was sort of shown to be right, he threw away the cosmological constant, calling it the biggest blunder of his life. Uh, and remember, the cosmological constant seems to repel the universe, seems to drive it apart, a sort of anti-gravity. And um, now, uh, I mean, when I was an undergraduate, I, I was taught that gravity should be pulling the universe back, slowing down the expansion, maybe even causing the universe to collapse. When people try to measure this um, in 1998, uh, what they found is that the universe is not slowing down. If anything, it's expanding faster and faster and faster. There seems to be some kind of anti-gravity pushing the universe apart. And that is exactly what Einstein's cosmological constant would do. So first of all, it was out of fashion, then it was in fashion, then it was out of fashion. Now it's back in fashion because it seems to explain these anomalous results. And um, it's a very new discovery. The, the observation of this accelerating universe. And so cosmologists are still coming to terms with it. But at the moment, uh, it has the label dark energy. And at the moment, the, the best explanation is that it's the cosmological constant that's causing this, this runaway expansion. Well, that concludes our interview with Michael Lemonick, who is a writer, a science writer with Time magazine, talking about the Big Bang Theory. Now, Earlier, we talked about parallel universes. So you may be wondering, what's the connection? What's the connection between the Big Bang, which has lots of experimental data behind it, and the theory of parallel universes? Well, here's the connection. You see, Einstein's theory is not a quantum theory. When you combine the quantum theory with general relativity, then you get a theory of everything, where gravity is described by Einstein's theory, we're talking about black holes and big bangs, the theory of the very big. But the theory of the very small, atomic physics, is described by the quantum theory. Now, in the quantum theory, there's always uncertainty. So if, if something happens once, there's always a probability that it'll happen again and again and again. So once you start to quantize the big bang, then you have this soap bubble that's expanding and then it pinches off a baby soap bubble. In other words, another small big bang. And that baby universe can peel off yet another universe. And eventually you get a bubble bath, a bubble bath of universes. So starting with one universe, it proliferates until you get a bubble bath of universes. This is called inflation theory. And of all the theories being proposed so far about the big bang, it's the one that fits the data. Of course, we can't verify the actual splitting process, but the results of the quantum theory, the results of inflationary theory, fit the astronomical data. In fact, inflation theory is one of the leading candidates now for a theory of the creation of the universe. And the man who first thought up the theory was Alan Guth, professor at MIT, friend of mine. In fact, we've had him on exploration before, talking about the inflationary universe. So the new wrinkle in all this is that we think that our universe may not be alone. There could be big bangs happening all the time in some distant sector of the universe. And then the question is, how do we prove it? 
Well, the consequences of this give you a very detailed analysis of the nature of the Big Bang, and those numbers fit perfectly well. What's missing, however, is the theory at the instant of the Big Bang. What drove inflation? How do we compare these results with mathematics? That requires a higher theory. And that higher theory, we think, is string theory. So, in other words, once you go to string theory, you're able to combine general relativity, the theory of the very big, with quantum theory, which is the theory of the very small. Now, what's the catch? The catch is, of course, experimentally verifying all this is something that we cannot yet do. In fact, there's a Nobel Prize waiting out there for somebody who can give us experimental evidence that the original Big Bang took place because of string theory, which in turn gave us inflationary theory, which in turn gives us the data that we get by analyzing our satellites in outer space. Well, my attitude is time will tell. Sooner or later, somebody is going to get a Nobel Prize for proving that this is, in fact, the theory of the creation of the universe. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, dial into my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org, and find out what all the excitement is about. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku for Exploration. Join us every week when we discuss the cutting edge of science. Good day. <music>